Sound Design. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today my guest is Jim Digby, president of the Event Safety Alliance. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. So Jim has worked in the entertainment industry for over 30 years as a live event and concert production manager for bands like Linkin Park and Backstreet Boys. I want to talk to him today about the elements necessary to produce a safe event, what you should know about labor and safety standards, and the new event safety guide. But first of all, Jim, what's your favorite Backstreet Boys song? Nathan, come on now. <laughs> that's a good that's a good first question. You know, um, it was an interesting experience being with the Backstreet Boys. They um, they are super nice guys, and it was a lot of fun, and it was an audience filled with um, uh, mothers who had previously discoed to the or danced to the Backstreet Boys. Awesome, good bunch of guys. All right. Well, what I really wanted to ask for my first question was, how did you get your first job in live events? Ha. Huh. Uh, well, I am one of those kids who. Um, was wayward until the right teacher came along. And that was, in my case, my fifth grade teacher. Uh, she made me the master of ceremonies for the May Day Parade, Mrs. DeJohn. And I was the technician for the May Day Parade at nine years old. And I was hooked. And I was fortunate enough to be in a school district that through all of uh, junior high school and high school, there was a robust uh, television and theater program and it's a good thing because as a student, I was uh, uh, a traditional student. I was not that clever. But when it came to being the school uh, technical guy for theater and television, I did all right. And, and that's how I got through school. Well, I want to get right into talking about um, some event safety and uh, some of the jobs that you've worked on. So first of all, I want to tell you a short story. Once I got a job offered to be the sound engineer and tour manager for an international tour. And I turned it down because I thought it would be way too much work. Later, I regretted it because I realized that I really didn't know what a tour manager does. So can we define some terms? Can you tell me about the responsibilities of a production manager and a tour manager? What specific tasks you were responsible for on those large scale tours? Uh, I'd be happy to, Nathan. The um Traditionally, the production manager's role encompasses all of those facilities and assets which are required to produce the live show. Uh, the sound, the lighting, the buses, the trucks, uh, video, etc. Uh, and the tour manager's role is generally focused on the principal and the artists. Uh, there are cases, uh, and it depends on where you are in the industry and, and what level artist you're working with, but there are cases where those two roles are combined into one, and in some cases, the front of house engineer is behaving as the tour manager and also the production manager. And as you grow in scale and success, oftentimes the, the, those roles begin to diverge and you see individuals uh, taking on each of those tasks rather than having them all thrown at one person. Uh, 
in the case of my current client, Lincoln Park, and, and the one I've been with for more than a decade now, uh, they travel slightly differently from most. They use um, hub cities for uh, any time we're on a tour, and the tour manager role is modified such that he is staying in the hub cities uh, and manning uh, the needs of the of the principals when they are in the hub cities, which by and large is a 20-hour day. Uh, and in the case of, of Lincoln Park, I see them for all of three to four hours, and I handle them when they're on the show site. So that means that some of my roles are blended into what would otherwise be a tour manager's role. Hmm. Um, the the general the general de- deception or description between the two is production is handling those things to execute the live show, and tour manager is handling those things to keep the um, the artists uh, happy. Okay, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, the uh, tour manager role is not one that I strive for because I think uh, you know in the production world it's black or white. It works or it doesn't work. If it's not working and it's broken, get another one. <laughs> If you can't make it work, we'll get another technician. On the tour manager side, you can't say that. You know, if you're dealing with an artist, uh, the likes of which you know may be problematic, you can't just say, "Hey, you're broken. We're not going to work with you." You tolerate <laughs> it and keep moving forward. So, Jim, ugly stories of event-related deaths and accidents seem to be more and more common. But are they really? It's hard to know because you don't hear a lot of news about all of the safe events where there was no injury and nothing bad happened. So part of me thinks that it's super obvious how important it is that everyone is invested in producing a safe event. But part of me also thinks maybe events are safer than ever and the news is just instilling us with fear. So is the rate of live event related deaths and injuries going up or down? It's a good question, Nathan. And I think the most important thing to start with in this answer is that it was roughly 40 years ago, I believe, that the Beatles were on the field at Shea Stadium, right? Ladies and gentlemen, here are the Beatles. And and that really kind of was the the starting point for the current... um, the current course of live events with respect to live music. So if you look at the history and the number of events produced worldwide with that as the the hallmark event, that is the the starting point, we do, as an unregulated, unwritten, ruled industry, we do really, really well. And I think that's an, an important note for the audience, that by and large, without much guidance at all, uh, and without the ability to really school on live event production, we produce a lot of safe events. And I think with the advent of social media and and and, and the proliferation of folks of, uh, producing festivals and the ability for people to get out into the field because the equipment's there and put on a show, we're seeing a greater number of events. And by and large, that probably means that there's some percentage of those events being produced by people who lack the necessary skills to do it safely. And we have a greater presence of social media around the world where we can learn about a failure instantaneously. So I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that it's a combination. I don't think that we're seeing a greater number of failures. We're aware of a greater number of events 
and that when a failure does occur, the entire world becomes aware of it instantly, where in the past, maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe there wasn't uh, anybody there with a, a camera or a phone, and that word may not have spread as quickly as it does now. So I'm hopeful that our industry is, is still in a safe place and still heading in the right direction. Well, I think another good thing to clear up is that the things we see in the news a lot are about these failing stage structures and basically big uh, stage rigs falling and tents falling. Is that the biggest problem right now? Or is it other smaller things that are more common? I would bet that, you know, well, we see the big stages falling and structural structural failures like that because they're sensationalist news and, and, they're, and it's a big deal when they go bad. Um, but I would, I would venture to guess that sadly, probably more people are injured or worse driving home after an event. Um, and, and there's little we can do to influence that, I'm afraid. So let's talk about the guidebook you offer through Event Safety Alliance. First, I think it might be easier to talk about what it's not since it's, it, it covers such a wide spectrum of events and and details. While it is a collection of safety recommendations and planning procedures, it is not a risk assessment or safety guide for your particular event. So you still have to write that yourself. And it does talk about rigging and electricity and weather and several other topics, but it doesn't tell you exactly what to do. So you still have to figure that out for yourself. Would you agree, Jim? I would agree that we never intended it to be those things. Um, I, I think it's important for the for the audience to note at this time, uh, as we transition to the guide, that prior to this guide being released, there was exactly zero other comprehensive best practices guidances available for you to read prior to this book. That means that every event, live event that's been produced before this book has been produced basically on someone's best abilities, best knowledge, best experience, and on-the-job training. We have always stated that this is a best practices guidance uh, book and that it is not a how-to manual, because partly because we are in an industry where we do it differently every day. We do it differently every day on purpose. We do it like that to maintain the audience's interest. If we produce the same show and the same style of event day on and day on, no one would buy the tickets. So it's impossible, I believe, to write a how-to manual for how to produce live events. It is, however, possible to capture from those who have got decades of experience in the industry the best practice procedures that they utilize in an effort to minimize risk towards the audience, risk for the crew, and risk for the principals which is what we've attempted to do in this guidance, and we recognize that this guidance is a living document, and it will continually change. It was never intended to be a how-to manual. But in and of itself, because it now exists, if you want to produce an event, you have a reference point that you didn't have before. And if you were, prior to this book, someone who wanted to produce an event, who wanted to do all the right things and needed to understand all of the applicable standards and guidelines that already apply to you that you may not be aware of, you would spend weeks, if not months, hunting down those guidelines. 
we've tried to encapsulate reference language to all of them inside this guide or as many of them as possible inside this guide so that you don't have to go in a library or anywhere else for that matter and spend what would you time you would rather be producing events trying to hunt down these guidances. I think that's important to say because if you start like I did thinking, oh great, this will solve all of my problems, you would be wrong. But if you go into it realizing that it's a collection of information that's going to save you a lot of time, you would be right. You would be right. And you would also find yourself in a place where you have a duty of care legally as an event producer to take every reasonable pra- even every reasonable action to ensure that you are doing the job safely for everyone involved everyone in your inside your sphere of influence prior to this book you would have absolutely nothing but your experience to go on now if you utilize the practices in this guidance to get you from point a to point b you can you have a defensible point to say that you're taking reasonably foreseeable actions to make sure that nothing goes wrong. And you have, you have reference to the guidances, uh, to, the, to the standards and codes and regulations that you would otherwise be held accountable for. Let's talk about who it's for. In the first chapter you write, The Event Safety Alliance includes tour managers, event producers, engineers, riggers, equipment leasers, roadies, safety specialists, and many more. We are people of action. It is not our nature to sit idly when there is work to be done. I like that quote, by the way. So after reading the guide, I agree that yes, everyone should read it and should be aware of these issues, but at the same time, a lot of it was way over my head. There are too many details really involved for someone like me, who's usually just a contractor coming at these events just for a day, just to maybe mix sound for a band. And as I read it, I find myself thinking, damn, I hope that event organizer is hiring a safety coordinator because this is a huge responsibility. But maybe my resistance to getting involved is part of the problem. But then not everyone can be aware of every detail of the plan. I'm not going to ask the event organizer, whoever has hired me, to show me their risk assessment and safety policy. So as you can see, I'm a little confused about who's responsible for what and how I fit into the plan. Yeah, it's a, it's a chicken and egg story, isn't it? What happens next? You know, we, There's a similar journey that has taken place in England uh, with respect to event safety and the creation of a guide. Um, in uh, 93, there was an incident with multiple deaths that caused a group similar to ours to come together uh, and create best practices guidance. Uh, they did that w- with the help of the health and safety executive for Great Britain and created what is now affectionately known as the Purple Guide, HSE 195. Mm-hmm. That document has been uh, under the arm of those who inspect and those who produce events more or less since 1999 and over the course of a decade or more has created, has served, has helped to serve, create, has helped to create a paradigm shift, a cultural change in the way that events get produced. We recognize, and I can specifically because I'm in that industry and I was that guy, that it, our behavior of the past has been cowboy-esque. We can go into any building, produce any show. The, re- the statement we are men of action is, 
you know, we're going to get the show done. The show must go on. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we are uh, we are not risk averse folks typically in the industry. We take risks. We likely do it without a full consideration for first life safety. Uh, and we likely do some of the things we do for bravado's sake because it is a kind of a macho business to be in the music business and the live event production business. We say now that that is the old way. That is the old paradigm. That is the old culture within our industry. And that now moving forward with the advent of this guide, we can begin to create a cultural change. We can begin to create the paradigm shift so that the younger guys coming up now will be able to take safety in mind as they go forward and produce the shows and that perhaps the cavalier attitude that has caused some of the issues of late will be tempered a little bit now that there's a best practices guide and now that the pressure is on to be sure that you're operating safely. It took every bit of 10 years in the UK for that paradigm shift to happen and I suspect it'll probably take every bit of 10 years here in the US for people to be fully compliant to best practices. We know that this is a long fight. We're not afraid of that. We don't expect that things are going to change overnight. And we don't expect that people are going to become savvy of this book overnight either. And likely, the likelihood is that in and of itself, if no further action were taken, it would just be a pretty paperweight. <laughs> so as a result, we're building tools that make the uptake of the guidance simpler there is a company now in full swing called Event Safety Operations, which is hireable. So all you really need to know as a production person is how to add that line item in your budget for safety. And then you can hire experts to come out and perform safety services for you. Create your risk assessments. Create your health and safety plan. Manage risks for your event. You can go on then producing the event, the thing that you got in this business for, and leave the risk assessing to someone else, someone who gets excited about doing that as much as we get excited about producing events. I like what you said there at the beginning because there's obviously a really big distance between going into an event saying there's nothing to worry about and going into an event and saying let's do this with safety in mind. Those don't seem that dissimilar, but I think there's a big difference there. I, I don't think anybody intentionally goes out into any event space and says, I'm going to kill somebody today, or I'm going to kill myself today because I didn't strap off as a rigger. I think that, that people are just, you know, when you're on the road touring, for instance, you're doing 16-hour days, and, you know, it, there are highs and lows every day, and you're probably doing five cities a week working at that pace, and you love what you do for a living, but you're not always looking at any everybody else's world to make sure that they're okay. And the book is a framework for all of us to begin talking in the same language with respect to safety. It's not just big shows. It's, it's the Boston Marathons. It's um, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee in England. It's down to the Cherry Festival, the, the Church Street Festival. There's, there's nothing in this book that prohibits the smallest event producer or the largest event producer from going to the index, finding a section that is relevant to their moment in time right now and saying, let me just review this for a second to make sure I've considered all the things I need to consider with respect to where I place my porta johns or where I place the barricade. Mm -hmm. And if I don't know everything I need to know, oh, look, there's the reference to the OSHA standard or there's the reference to the Plaza standard that tells me 
precisely with specificity what the regulation is. That's the intent of this guide. And that's the intent of the Event Safety Alliance, to be that consensus voice that help to help our industry progress to a place where we are much safer in every consideration that we make on a day-to-day basis. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. Let's get into a couple of the details just for a couple of minutes. And um, if you don't have much to say about it, that that blah. if you don't have much to say about it, that's fine. But I want to see if we can talk about um, first of all personal protective equipment. And I normally normally think of hard hats and rigging harnesses for stage builders. But what about sound engineers? Um, I guess they would include gloves and earplugs. But what else would you recommend? What other hazards might a sound engineer be exposed to? The original foreword for the guide was a story about being a kid in the back of a station wagon in 1969, sitting in a rear-facing seat with a window wide open, traveling down the road at 55 miles an hour with, with no seatbelt. That was the way in 1969. And eventually, enough people were killed because, <laughs> because of that, and seatbelts started, the, the, the metrics started to prove that seatbelts were saving lives and it wasn't for a full, I, I forget the math now, you know, it was at least a decade. The car companies started putting seatbelts in cars, but it was a decade later that the, the, the gov- federal government got behind it and said, you need to wear seatbelts. So I, I think, you know, personal protective equipment is a, is a personal choice at the moment. The OSHA sets up very clear guidelines for general industry and construction industry, and they attempt to apply those to the event space. And in some places that application works. For instance, in the morning when there are trucks at a loading dock and there's equipment coming out of those trucks and there are forklifts running around and the stage is being built and there are riggers in the air with heavy equipment over your head, you more or less are a construction site. Like it or not, you're a construction site. And you should be you should be following the guidelines of that construction site. Hard hat, high vis, steel toed shoes strapped, you know, clipped in on your rigging harness, full body rigging harness, double lanyards. Those things are just good safety practices. And I would argue, and so does OSHA, when when you're taking the OSHA training, if you choose not to clip in as a rigger, if you choose not to wear a hard hat underneath somebody who's working overhead, be sure before you leave home that morning that you've kissed your wife goodbye and you've put enough money in the bank account so that your kids can go through school. You've <laughs> just made a decision to possibly kill yourself by not wearing your PPE. And if you take your family that not that seriously and you go out and you make the decision to not wear your PPE and something happens to you, God forbid, you made a conscious decision to do that and you've left your family and your friends in a lurch as a result of it. And that's not right. Can we talk about earplugs for a second? We certainly can. So I'm going to read something from your guide here that says, 
If employees are exposed to occupational noise at or above 85 decibels, averaged over an eight-hour period, the employer is required to institute a hearing conservation program that includes regular testing by qualified professionals. So 85 dB is pretty low. It's equivalent to busy city traffic or a garbage disposal from 15 meters. So I think we can all agree that your typical live event exposes us to much greater risk. And yet, I've never seen this mandate followed anywhere, really. No employer has ever made me aware of their hearing conservation program and sent me to an audiologist. Fine. So I have to take care of myself. I use earplugs. I go to the audiologist. But there's obviously a big disconnect between what's written in this guide and the real world. So what's missing here? Well, firstly, I, I, I need to correct you, Nathan. That comment, that statement in the guide and those guidelines within the guide are taken directly from OSHA. And those are OSHA workplace safety standards. Mm, okay. And their bare and their their best practices as produced by OSHA. It's a direct uh, copy from their their guidance. Um, you know, obviously there is the need for personal responsibility as well. That you as a human being, be you an audience member or an employee, should be taking your personal uh, care, you should be taking responsibility for your own personal care as part of this. However, as, as I've stated, you know, the, the eight hours of exposure on a show site is not typical other than, unless you're at a festival. And again, here, I think we're asking the audience to take reasonable precautions for themselves. If you buy a ticket to go to a festival that's going to have music for eight hours, you know that you're going to be exposed to audio levels that possibly uh, are above the levels recommended by OSHA. Uh, there are no strict guidances and there's no strict monitoring and there's no strict regulation for exposure to an audience mem member. Uh, there are uh, these guidances by OSHA that are reference guidances um, for workplace uh, uh, audio exposure. Uh, and then there are those who are conscientious enough who produce events who monitor this themselves, uh, I'm happy to say, such as the front house engineer for Lincoln Park, Ken Van Druten, we have a self-imposed exposure limit to 102 dBA weighted over 10 minutes so that we're not exposing the audience to anything higher than what OSHA states, which is 102 dB over an hour and a half. Okay. Uh, we do that as, as good citizens of the event space as good citizens of show production. We don't do that because um, someone has told us to mix below that. We do it because we believe we want to preserve our audience's ears so they can come back and see a show the next time. Uh, and unfortunately, we're in the minority currently. And then do you, do you talk to your employees or contractors that you work with on, the event, on these events about hearing protection? Are, are you involved in some way? We do set up, we, we do try to be very conscious of uh, moments where we are creating a sound at a level that our team might not be prepared for. And by that, I mean in, before the audience is in the building, when we're powering the systems up and we're noising the systems, et cetera, we take a minute to first let everybody on the floor know, hey, we're getting ready to noise the systems. If you have your hearing protection, you should put it in now. Uh, we do try to be conscious around our team of, of making those uh, sounds 
as a surprise. We try not to surprise anyone. Nice. Well, I want to put a call out to listeners of this podcast that if you work somewhere um, that does this really well, that has a hearing conservation program that includes regular testing by qualified professionals, I want to hear about it because I want to know who somebody who's doing that really well and, and what's involved there. I can tell you that I can tell you that Disney does that. That Disney puts you through if, if you're a technician and you're exposed. If you're if you're being hired for a job that exposes you to those sorts of things. And I know this because I worked for Disney so long ago. Uh, you go through a comprehensive health workup prior to being employed by them, which includes uh, hearing tests, uh, baseline hearing and baseline vision, et cetera, uh, so that um, you know they know what condition you were in when you started your employment. I, and I think that's pretty good. Although it takes a company the size of Disney to afford that kind of of luxury for their employees, I think. Uh, it is uh, an interesting model that should be considered wherever possible. I like it. I don't want to call it a luxury. <laughs> Sounds good. Sound Design Live produces free audio podcast interviews with industry experts, product reviews of pro audio books, hardware, and software, and tutorials and articles on sound engineering, sound design, and sound system design and optimization. Subscribe today at sounddesignlive.com or by searching for Sound Design Live in iTunes or SoundCloud. So this is mainly just a side note, but I just wanted to point out that in your guide, I learned that uh, the use of ADA-compliant cable ramps must be used in areas where the general public will cross cable runs. And that was a big surprise for me because I've worked in a lot of situations where people just run cables through the middle of a crowd and they're not covered. And it turns out that that's illegal, and, or at least <laughs> that you shouldn't be doing that and that it's dangerous. Uh, so I just want to put that out there for other people who have seen uh, a similar situation. And Nathan, you've just highlighted another paradigm shift that that hopefully will be will be the outcome of what we're up to with the event safety alliance which by the way i'm not sure if your listeners are aware as a not-for-profit you know or it's a consensus body trying to do the right thing to keep our industry healthy but what you've highlighted here with respect to cable runs and cable ramps is that in the u.s currently the inspection procedure has no form so it's right now left to the good graces of those who are producing the show, and that includes the venue, it includes the sponsors, it includes the producers and promoters, and it includes the production, to be behaving as good citizens. Uh, you know, because no one's going to come in and say, well, we are not yet at a place where everyone's going to come in and say, hey, that cable doesn't have a cable mat on it. It's a trip hazard. You need to fix it. Uh, and we're not in a place where those who currently inspect us are ready to look for all of those things. They may not have the baseline knowledge to examine for all of those things. And one of the hopeful outcomes of the Event Safety Alliance and the Event Safety Guide is that over time, we will make those who inspect the shows, the first responders, the authorities having jurisdiction, the insurance agents, those who would otherwise be looking for the things that might cause public harm, to make them more aware of the kinds of things that they should look for. It's not more costly to do it right. Uh, in fact, it's more costly to do it wrong. And it's not healthy for our industry to be continually creating hazards for public safety 
I'm a father. I'm a father of young children. You know, a, a couple of more accidents similar to Indiana, and I might say my kids are never going to go to shows, and that's not good for any of us. So we had hoped that by getting in front of this issue in the, the horrible summer of 2011, that we would be able to address the concerns of the of the industry from within and create good best practices where none otherwise existed in writing in an effort to thwart off the government coming in and creating best practices that may or may not be applicable to what we're doing and might be harmful to our industry. Well, let's talk about just for a second, um, it's more expensive to do it wrong because if I pretend that I'm a vendor, maybe of a PA company, then I say, okay, it's going to cost maybe an extra thousand dollars to bring in cable ramps for this event. So I'm going to cut those uh, so I can try and get the lowest bid to make sure that I get this job. So what do you say? Well, interestingly, Nathan, you've highlighted yet another issue that needs to be changed within the industry. And that is that there is always somebody around the corner who's willing to do it less expensive and maybe less professionally for you. The bold statement of it's more expensive to do it wrong is intended to say, if someone does get hurt by your negligence, that's going to cost a lot more money than it would have cost to put the cable ramps down on the floor. Uh The fact is, currently, because there isn't a clear-cut inspection process, because there was never a written best practice before, uh, you can get away with behavior like that in some places and therefore jeopardize not only yourself and your business but your industry. Ultimately, what will come is folks will inspect and they'll know what they're inspecting for. And the guys who are the cheaper guys around the corner will hopefully stop getting the work. Um, Because no one knows what to look for, because there's no clear-cut criteria between what is an excellent vendor and what is a mediocre vendor and what is a vendor you just need to stay away from, we're still going to see these things. But over time... And because there's a voice like the Event Safety Alliance, those folks will start being, they'll start finding their way to the light of safety or to the darkness of not doing the business, hopefully. Jim, does a sound engineer need to carry personal liability insurance? A couple of months ago, I interviewed Darren De La Soul from Soul Sound in London, and in her book, she says that everyone must have personal liability insurance in the UK. But I hardly know anyone who carries it in the US. That's a good question, Nathan. I, I just recently learned of a charge that's finding its way through the systems in the UK called uh, corporate manslaughter. And to summarize it in my rudimentary understanding, corporate manslaughter means that I knowingly allowed an action to take place that caused the death or injury of someone else. Now, in this particular example that was used, this was a booking agency routes a tour where the truck drivers and bus drivers have to drive longer than the, than the allowed number of hours or miles on the roadway. Said truck driver has gone past his limit, falls asleep, drives the truck across the road, kills an innocent mom and their children going down the highway on the other side. 
not only is the truck driver responsible for that action, but now everyone in the stream of responsibility for allowing that truck driver to drive excess miles is going to go to jail for corporate manslaughter. Which means the production manager, the booking agent, the manager, the artist, everyone will be held accountable for allowing someone else to do something against the, the written law. I say that in, in, in response to your answer because it's not inconceivable that a front of house engineer who knowingly exceeds decibel limits, uh, knowing that the OSHA written best practices are one thing and they're their decibel limit is far in excess above that, and they could find themselves being sued for damage to, to for hearing loss. Well, in that case, you'd sure wish that you had some sort of personal liability or professional liability insurance on your own. I, I, I think it's I think many in the industry are under the belief that because they've been hired for a particular artist and or thing. Um, they fall under the protection of their insurances. That's not good enough for me. Uh, I've seen too many incidences, maybe not firsthand, but secondhand where a staffer for a particular artist may have been uh, superficially engaged in, a, in an issue that went wrong and the artist's legal team that they thought they had protection under was not there for them. So I can only speak to what Jim Digby does, and that is I carry my own professional liability for those moments. God forbid they should ever happen to me. But I don't want to rely on someone else to mess up my day. I want to be, have full control of those things. And therefore, I see it as a good best practice to carry your own liability. I want to interrupt the podcast for a minute to tell you about Patreon. Patreon is a great way for people like me to use crowdfunding to support their work. It's basically like an ongoing Kickstarter campaign where you can pledge a certain amount for each new podcast that I create. Don't worry about paying too much in a month or accidentally going over your budget because you can set a maximum pledge per month. My content is still free. I'm just asking for your support. In return, every time you listen to an episode of Sound Design Live, you'll know that you contributed to its creation. Now, if you want to give a little bit more per month, I have a bunch of cool bonus offerings like the Sound Design Live ebook, a monthly Q&A session, career coaching, and even participation during the live interviews. Another really cool thing about contributing through Patreon is that the more supporters I have, the more time I can spend on Sound Design Live, and the more great educational interviews I can publish for you. So if you feel that Sound Design Live has made a difference, then go to patreon.com slash sounddesignlive right now to become a supporter. That's patreon.com slash sounddesignlive. Thank you. Uh, let's see. I have a question from a reader, Eric, uh, who actually works at one of the hotels that I work at sometimes, asks, what are some good questions about safety to ask of a venue that you've never visited? What questions can help us be more informed than the standard venue documents we see? How can these questions we ask affect the ability of our people to be safe working in a remote location? So if he was here, I would ask him, what are the standard venue documents that you're seeing and what questions, what more information do you feel like you need? But just from these questions, do you think you can respond to that? I would argue, firstly, they need to you know, start in your own house. 
uh, are are all of your team members in some way safe, safety trained or safety aware? Are is all of your equipment certified and and annual? You know, whatever the frequency of recertification is, if it's a rigging motor, is it getting uh, updated certifications? Are your steels, etc.? Uh, with respect to a venue, you know, oftentimes we. Uh, are guilty of going into venues and looking for a convenient place to hang something, which can be a sprinkler pipe or, or any number of things. Uh, a good venue, I suspect, is going to have an engineering uh, a document of some sort that indicates where hanging is good and and what what weight limits or what limits are are in place for those particular locations. I suspect they're going to have a, a robust health and safety program for their employees. There isn't, again, there still isn't a standard here for what information should be exchanged from a venue to a, a producing entity that verifies their preparedness for a particular thing. And since our things can take any manner of form, uh, it's, it's really hard to define what that should look like. Can I kind of pose the question in another way, put you in the hot seat and say, okay, you are coming to, let's say, the Fox Theater in Oakland. You've never worked there before. In your first conversation with them, what kind of things do you ask of them to get the conversation started? I'm afraid my answer to this may not suit most of your listeners, but my answer to this is I'm counting on a local promoter to be the person in between me and that theater. But I can tell you with relative certainty the kinds of things I personally look at when I arrive, and that is, is this place a fire trap? Is there a fire marshal of some sort here? Are there doors that are chained shut? Are there materials that look like they're not flame-proof? Not that I'm going to have bring anything that creates fire, but geez, it's a concern everywhere you go, especially in these old theaters. Mm-hmm. Has this rigging grid been been inspected in uh, any time uh, in the near past uh, is it the IATSE who's in here operating it or is it is it the group of folks who have just been here forever and, and may not have any school learning but have figured it out on the fly geez I, I mean I look for I look for the obvious and I and I try to make sure that I'm as conscious as I can be of a particular space but it's and that's a hard one to answer I'm afraid it's, it, for me, it's, insti- it's an instinctive thing because I've been doing it for so long. For a new person, uh, I, it sounds like a place where we need to have more clarity in the event safety guide. I think it's important, and, and you know, because this is a uh, a good faith project, the Event Safety Alliance, and that you know our desire, our work is nonprofit, and and our desire is to to keep our industry healthy. I think it, it would be important for your listeners to know that they are all welcome to become members of the Event Safety Alliance for free, and that they can go to eventsafetyalliance.org and sign up there. They can purchase a copy of the guide there. If uh, if they are in a fortunate position to have a little bit of money, they can contribute to the cause as well. Um, by becoming a trade association member. And the, the larger our voice, the more effect we can have on making sure that everybody who comes to a show goes home from a show, not in a body bag. Sound design. 
So you can follow Jim Digby's work at Event Safety Alliance at eventsafetyalliance.org, as he mentioned, on Twitter at eventsafetyforall, on Facebook at facebook.com slash eventsafetyalliance, and they have a LinkedIn group called, guess what, Event Safety Alliance. Jim, thanks so much for being on Sound Design Live today. It's my pleasure, Nathan. Thank you for having us. Sound Design. Live.